Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Ray Kaplan. He's a professor of infectious disease at uh, University of Georgia. We're going to talk about uh, parasites, roundworms, uh, drug resistance, etc. So, Ray, thanks for coming. Uh, thank you, Richard. Yeah. Tell me about uh, your, your interests. How did you get interested in parasites? How did you run across them? Yeah, it's a it's kind of an interesting uh, story, uh, and it it relates to why it's good to give opportunities to uh, to young people. Uh, I was, uh, you know, at Virginia Tech as an undergraduate, and I was in a work study program, a cooperative education program, really, where I would spend six months uh, of the year in in class, and six months of the year I'd be working, and I was working at the uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture, um, and. I went back for one of my uh, from one of my work sessions, and due to some budget cuts, uh, they had no funding. So um, they they searched around and found another laboratory um, that uh, that had some funding, and I went to work for them. And it turned out to be a parasitology laboratory. Uh, it was just a short three month uh, stint there, um, but it was something different than I had done uh, uh, previously, and I I just found it really super interesting, um, and so. Uh, then later on, when I went to veterinary school, I, it really was uh, parasitology was rekindled. Uh, my interest in parasitology was was rekindled, and um, and so I stayed active uh, working in the parasitology lab um, and uh, and doing some re- some research uh, while I was in veterinary school. Um, and so that really kind of set the stage, such that when I decided to leave practice uh, and 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 pursue uh, a career in, in academics. Um, that um, I decided that uh, pursuing parasitology was uh, was the right field for me. Okay, and yeah, there's a big world inside of every field. So, what are you focusing on within parasitology? What kind of organism and what kind of host and what mechanism? Yeah, so um, um, so my research now is focused on on nematodes, uh, uh, also referred to as roundworms, and this is a, a very very large group of uh, of or- organisms. Um, that uh, that uh, exist as free living forms uh, in the environment, and, and actually, free living nematodes are, are believed to be um, the most uh, the largest group of of, uh, of uh, organisms on the planet of you know of uh, metazoan organisms, uh, animals uh, on the planet. Uh, and then there's plant parasitic nematodes of many many t- types, and then there's also um, uh, veterinary. Oh, I'm sorry, um, parasites of, of animals. Uh, and uh, and of course humans and and, and veterinary um, uh, species. So it's a huge huge group uh, of organisms. Uh, and uh, so I, I work in uh, uh, in that group, and I focus on uh, parasites of of livestock uh, and of of dogs, uh, with a focus in drug resistance. Drug resistance meaning that the parasite itself has acquired resistance, just like you know, bacteria do from uh, antibiotics? Yeah, yeah, sorry. Uh, sorry for, for not explaining that better. Um, 
So yeah, we use uh, we use drugs called anthelmintics, uh, which would be uh, akin to antibiotics that are used for bacteria uh, for treating uh, infections uh, with parasitic worms. Uh, and there are some amazing drugs, and they've worked really well for for decades. But um, but they've really stopped working, and and more and more so, we're seeing more and more uh, resistance to more and more drugs and more and more parasites, and in many in some cases uh, to all drugs that we have available, just like we have uh, multiple drug-resistant bacteria that nothing can kill. We have that now with parasitic worms. Uh, so that's the, that's the area where I focus my research is to, is to, is to try to understand um, and, and solve the, the problems posed by, by drug resistance in, in these worms where the drugs no longer are working to control them. Huh. What happens um, if you have a parasite that usually infects a dog, but I don't know. Like, well, first of all, look at so the parasites that would infect dogs, you know, the, the roundworms, where do they come from? How do they get them? Okay. Well, there's, there's many different types of worms, and they're going to come from, from different uh, sources. Uh, I should say that basically each animal, each type of animal has, has their own worms, and most worms are very specific to, to a particular host. Uh, so a worm that infects dogs mostly is pretty much just going to infect dogs. Um, and cats actually have different species than dogs for most parasites. There, there is some crossover in closely related species, um, but, um, um, but mostly they're separate. Like, and for instance, uh, horses and cows have, have really completely different parasites. There's very, very few that cross over between them. The overwhelming majority are very specific. Uh, and even between uh, animals like cows and sheep that are fairly closely related, uh, the majority of species are actually different. They're very closely related. They're like cousins of each other, but they have different species and, and only a relatively small number actually cross in fact. So when we're talking about a parasite of dogs, that uh, it really depends up, upon the parasite. And to give you two examples of parasites that I, I do a lot of work with in dogs, uh, heartworms, uh, which is probably the most important parasite of dogs. It, it can really cause life-threatening disease. It's, it's uh, um, found in dogs all across the country. And it's transmitted by a mosquito. So the mosquito is a necessary part of the life cycle. And so what happens is the mosquito has to, has to bite a dog that's, that's infected with heartworms. Uh, during that blood meal, uh, it ingests um, a stage called microfilaria, um, which is a, a larval stage. And then those larvae would develop in the mosquito and go through several stages of development in the mosquito until it reaches the, the infective stage uh, that then will be transmitted to a subsequent dog, uh, if that same mosquito that now has uh, uh, survived long enough to have those uh, uh, mature infective larvae inside that inside their body, if they if that mosquito then takes another meal, uh, it will trans it can transmit that worm to to a new dog. Uh, so what if um what if what if a mos- I don't know if they do, but what if a biting mosquito that's you know that's bitten a dog with heartworm then bites me? Yeah, and um, puts the heartworm into me. Will I get it or no? Uh, uh, well, you won't get the heartworm in the true sense, uh, like a dog gets it, um, and you probably won't. Probably nothing will happen. Although in a, a small percent of cases, humans can become infected. But what happens is the worm, um, uh, as it'll penetrate into the skin, like in a dog. But because it's in the wrong host, it really doesn't know where it's going. It doesn't have any cues, um, and uh, so it winds up. It winds up doing some migration. And typically what happens, it, it will die during the migration. Um, and, and a small percent of people will be found will have a small nodule in their lung, actually. It's completely harmless, um, but 
um, but there's a little nodule that, that can be seen like in an x-ray on a lung um, that, uh, that if it's actually uh, biopsied, will show that it's just a, um, it's just a, a granuloma or you know, a group of inflammatory cells that have, have encased a, a small little worm. Um, so it really doesn't cause any disease in humans, although it, it can infect humans technically uh, uh, and uncommonly, but, uh, but it can. It's just amazing that parasites are matched with their hosts and they, they're so selective to them. You know? Yeah, no, it, it's a, it, it is, a, but it's really, it's due to, you know, you know, millions or, you know, tens or hundreds of millions of years of evolution. These parasites uh, um, have just adapted um, to their hosts. Probably, you know, way back in evolutionary history, a lot of these parasites as they were, as they were basically, um, transitioning from the free living paras- free living nematodes that weren't parasitic to becoming parasitic, um, then they probably started to separate out um, uh, and they probably were more generalist. But over, over, uh, you know, over millions of years of evolution, they became well adapted to particular hosts and they became so well adapted that then they weren't even able to infect other hosts. So um, in looking at the parasites, trying to figure out why they're resistant to drugs, you know, for what I've gleaned talking to other parasitologists that parasites have their own microbiome um that microbiome probably has phages that prey upon it uh, i don't know if anyone's found viruses that particularly attack parasites and, and kill them or make them sick but uh you know they seem to be uh very amazing creatures yeah that's an interesting uh, uh area um you know that no one has yet found a virus uh that is a pathogen uh, of a worm that could be used uh, a, a, as a mechanism of control. Uh, but there's definitely, um, they definitely um, have, a, have a microbiome for sure. But there's really very little known about that. I think that's an area that's going to uh, be ripe for, for research uh, in the future. But currently, we really don't know very much, much about it from, from that standpoint. But, with, but it is interesting in terms of a microbiome, that you, now that you bring it up, is that, you know, is there's been a lot in the news in recent years about how important uh, the microbiome of the gut is to, is to human health. Uh, and, um, and the same is true, of course, in animals. But what's often overlooked is the fact that, you know, while that microbiome in the gut of all these, back, you know, billions and trillions of bacteria in the gut, you know, with many, many different species, some of them are beneficial, some of them are harmful. And so there's a balance and you want the good, you want more good ones to, to, for, to remain healthy. That, that evolutionary process that was occurring was occurring in the presence of worms because worms have all also been in the gut throughout all evolutionary times. It's only been in just, the, you know, the last hundred years or so that, you know, that people really have, don't have worms anymore. Of course, animals uh, still have worms in their gut commonly. So, um, so the, you know, so the worms actually, you know, evolved, co-evolved with the host while the microbiome and the, what we refer to as the nemobiome, you know, the, uh, all those nematodes were also in there. So it's really a complex relationship that, that we're really just beginning to understand. Um, but we do know that we think of worms as being bad things, as being pathogens, and they, and they do cause a lot of serious disease. Uh, but there's also ev- evidence um, that uh, from an evolutionary perspective that that worms probably were important for helping to regulate uh, a healthy immune response and prevent uh, the, uh, inflammatory, hyperinflammatory diseases um, and, uh, and autoimmune diseases and things like that that we commonly see uh, in the first world. And those diseases are actually quite uncommon in the underdeveloped world where people are infected with worms commonly. So there are instances of, uh, 
of worms that are actually helpful to their host, or at least not pathogenic. They just live inside them for long periods of time and get along and hang out and do their thing. Well, actually, that's probably true of most parasites, really. It's, it's, um, um, it's more so numbers. Like we think of parasites as being harmful, but in, very, in low numbers, they probably are not. They're, they're not really very harmful to the host. It's when, it's when you get too many worms. And, this is, and then when I say this, it's, it really depends upon the worm. Um, and this is not an area of where I focus and specialize. It's a really interesting area. Um, it's not an area that is my specialty, so I don't want to go too deep into it. Um, but, but when we see disease in animals from parasites, it's, it's usually because they have, they have too many parasites, not because they have some parasites. Um, and, uh, and so basically the whole idea with control of parasites, uh, uh, particularly in a, in a livestock situation where I really focused most of my research on over the years, is to maintain levels of parasitism in animals below the threshold that cause disease because it's impossible to, to eliminate them. Uh, we try to eliminate them by treating them frequently with drugs. And all we've got out of that is, uh, is that the drugs don't work anymore and the worms are still there. So, so we're trying to come up with uh, strategies to, to reduce the amount of drugs that we use and still uh, keep parasite uh, uh, burdens in the animals at, at low enough thresholds that they're not causing disease. Um, that kind of strategy works well in livestock. It doesn't actually work well for dogs um, uh, for, for two reasons. One, a, a worm like heartworm is very pathogenic and it can cause disease. Just very low numbers of worms can cause serious disease. So you don't want a dog with any heartworms. Uh, and another worm I work with, hookworms, um, uh, it's a blood-sucking worm that lives in the intestine. You know, that's a worm that, uh, that if there's just a few there, probably wouldn't cause much harm to the dog. But it's, it's one of the worms that actually is zoonotic. Uh, which means it can cross over from, from animals to people. Um, and kind of like the story I told you with heartworm, if, if a person gets infected with hookworms, hookworms actually can infect directly through the skin. And so if a dog hookworm uh, infects a human by penetrating the skin, uh, again, it, it doesn't have the right cues. It can't do its migration that it needs to do. Normally in the dog, what's going to happen is the, that larvae, after it penetrates the skin of a dog, is going gonna, is gonna to enter into the bloodstream uh, and uh, go go to the lungs, uh, basically penetrate in, into the lungs from the bloodstream, crawl crawl up the bronchial tree, and then get swallowed back uh, to the intestine. And, and that that kind of that route is used by quite a few parasites. Um, however, in a human, if we, when the worm penetrates human skin, it doesn't as I, it doesn't have the right cues, and so it just starts migrating under the skin, and it causes a very severe. Uh, um, hyperinflammatory response that, that kind of is uh, similar to what you would get from, from poison ivy. And, and you can see these, these tracks under the skin that are, that are very inflammatory and, and reddened and raised and extremely itchy, just like you would see with, um, uh, with poison ivy. Um, and, and, and that's what happens when people get infected with dog hookworms. Um, and, and, and so that's why at the beach, when you, um, you know, you, a lot of the laws, you know, for, for keeping animals off dogs, cats off the beach, uh, or keeping them leashed and, and, and cleaning up after them, you know, that, that's one of the, one of the parasites and one of the diseases humans can get from, from these, uh, from animals, uh, that, uh, that we need to be concerned about. Well, instead of, um, are there worms that will exclude other worms? Are there ones that, you know, aren't too harmful in low numbers, like you said, and when a, a dog has them, for instance, it'll stop them from getting heartworm or hookworm or Perhaps that's a mechanism by which you can avoid using drugs deliberately infect them with something yeah. that's not so bad. 
Yeah, and that's that's a good thought, but but no, that doesn't happen. Basically, each uh, each species of worm has its own niche. It's it's really kind of fairly unique. Uh, even like in the intestine, there's lots of different intestinal worms, but each worm has this preference of of where it lives inside the intestine, um, and uh, and so they um, they don't. There's really no competition, uh, exclusionary type of competition. Um, so having one worm won't protect you from an, from another worm. Are there um, again? Uh, are there instances of a lot of these worms that will stay in a host for a long time and then only come out, let's say, when the host is under some kind of stress or sickly? Yeah, um, yeah, that that's a good question because that, that that definitely happens. And I would say the majority of parasites uh, have a have a, a finite lifespan that lasts in, anywhere from. Um, a few months to many months, and some can live for for you know a few years. Not, uh, but most most of worms are, are going to live a matter of months um, uh, in a host. However, you know that's kind of once they reach the adult the adult stage. However, there are some parasites, and hookworm is another great example. So that life cycle I told you about, where the where the worm penetrates the skin of the dog, um, as a dog in the, that that cycle where the larva penetrates the lungs and goes up the bronchial tree back to the intestine. That occurs mostly in puppies. Um, but then once dogs start getting older and they start developing immunity, what happens is there appears to be a, a, like an immune blockade that prevents the larvae from getting into the lungs. So, so instead of, once it's in a bloodstream, instead of getting, uh, having the ability to penetrate into the lungs, it gets flushed away into other tissues like muscle and uh, uh, and then the worms will just penetrate into uh, the tissues around the body um, uh, you know mostly muscle but many other tissues in the mammary tissue and they'll kind of go into an arrested state of development and they can stay in this arrested state kind of um, almost like uh, almost like um, you know it's like a hibernation type state for years and then particularly in dogs what happens is that um, after after um, uh, a female dog has puppies um, and she's lactating, um, the 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 larvae actually during late during late um, pregnancy become reactivated, and then they'll actually travel into the into the milk, and there's direct transmammary transmission of hookworms from from um, from the bitch to the puppies uh, uh, right after they're born. It's amazing how these parasites can, I mean, I'm assuming anthropomorphize it, you know, know, they know where to go. Somehow they know they're in the right host. Uh, you know, they're reacting to cues. They're able to hang out and hide and monitor the host, you know, conditions until the time is right. And I mean, are there, are there also worms that uh, will go into a, I don't know what call a sporulated form, but you know, a dormant or an inaccessible form if the conditions go wrong in a host instead of just dying. Not really. I and mean, they, um, they, they've adapted these abilities to kind of go into this arrested state of development uh, and, and live inside the host for a long time, either, uh, either free for in like hookworms, it could be for years. So like in a normal, in, um, in most dogs, all those larvae that get insisted um, will just never come out of insistment. Only two types of dogs will ever come out. Um, it has to be an intact female that then gets pregnant. And then the larvae have the opportunity to come out, um, and we don't know the exact mechanism, but it appears to be some interaction of the of the hormonal changes and the immune response. And then there's a small percentage of other dogs um, 
that we again we don't know the exact mechanism, but it appears to have they, they appear to have some sort of immuno incompetence, even though they're healthy otherwise. Um, and then these dogs, the the hookworm larvae can slowly just leak out um, over time. So these these are, so these dogs are like every time they go to the vet, they have hookworms. But the treatment is effective to to get rid of them. But as soon as you treat them, more will come back because you, know, you have this this reservoir uh, in the animal. So so we have that. And then in livestock parasites, um, and so the larvae uh, of livestock parasites are going to be just living, you know, in the grass. Uh, uh, down at the lower ends of the grass, just uh, near the soil, and then they're ingested while the while the horse or cow is grazing. And then what happens there is that you know during during times of the year where it's too cold or too hot for the larvae to be able to survive out in the environment, what what happens is is there's cues that they pick up uh, prior to the adverse time of the year. So let's say like in the in the in a cold climate um, where of course there's no there's no um, uh, parasite transmission in the wintertime because the cows aren't grazing in the winter. So the parasites have adapted, some species have, de- have, have developed the ability to pick up on cues. Again, we don't know exactly what they are, but it appears to have something to do with, um, uh, with probably their, con- their condition based upon changes in temperature and changes in daylight. And then what happens is when they're ingested fr- on the pasture, instead of doing their normal development as they usually do, they, they will penetrate into the tissues of, of the host, of, of the cow, let's say, uh, and they go into an arrested state for several months. Um, and then they only come out and, and continue their development several months later. So that would be like in the springtime when now the environment is conducive to that parasite being able to survive and transmit further. Um, so, so the parasites do have mechanisms to survive uh, periods of adverse environmental conditions like that. Um, and they can do it for it depends upon whether it's a cold climate or a hot climate or a dry climate. When whenever there's you know a time of the year where it's really not going to be possible for that for that parasite living in the environment um, outside of the host uh, to survive, and and pretty much every parasite has a stage outside of their hosts. Um, uh, either either has to be in a, in a what we call an intermediate host like a mosquito or another animal. Um, or it's going to be in the free living environment, but every parasite has that stage uh, in between two different hosts that get infected. And so, so they are, so there's a very, very intimate interaction of parasite and the host and the environment all together. And so parasites have developed mechanisms to kind of uh, overcome some of the adversities that they can, they can, uh, um, that they could, uh, see in the environment that that would that would affect their ability to complete their life cycles, but there's no stage like bacteria like uh, that can go into like a spore and just kind of live in the environment potentially for decades um, uh, or even longer. Um, there's really no there's really no form like that for parasites. But there is a, a cyst form. Would do you think it would be possible to create a drug that wouldn't kill the bacteria but would put them into cyst form? So they go inactive inside a host for a while. That that is possible. The problem with strategies like that is that often it's the um, for many parasites, it's kind of that larval stage when they come out of encystment that is the most pathogenic part of the of the life cycle. Um, so if you encouraged more and more and more to become encysted, when they finally did come out, then you could cause a lot of severe disease. So how do the current drugs work to uh, to get rid of worms? Let's say in dogs, and you know what? Uh, how does the mechanism seem to be failing? Like, how does the, the resistance manifest itself? Um, 
Interestingly enough, we know very little about, about how these drugs even work and, and even less about how resistance uh, develops. Even though we've been studying them, studying this for years and years, uh, these, these worms are super complex. They, they're much, much closer, um, um, closely related to, to their hosts, to, to mammals, than they are to anything like a virus or a bacteria. They have very large genomes. They, they have uh, you know, a lot of genes. So they have, they have almost as many genes as a mammal does. So these are very, very, and they share a lot of the same metabolic pathways. So these are very complex, higher organisms. Um, and so it's, it's been really difficult to find um, what's causing resistance to the drugs. For one of our drugs, we have three, we have three major um, families of drugs that we use uh, as amplementics. And there's, there's some other drugs, other fa families of drugs that are used more narrowly. Um, but there's three major broad, broad spectrum classes of drugs that are most, most often used. Uh, and each of those has a different mechanism. One of them we know is it kills by causing paralysis of the worms. Another one is a metabolic poison. And we know it affects, it interacts with, uh, with tubulin and prevents uh, microtubule formation. Um, and microtubules are, are critical components of, of cellular structure and and uh, and and just cellular metabolism and, and, and movement of of molecules through cells, um, and then the, the what's interesting is that is probably the most important drug we have ivermectin, um, and then the whole class of drugs that we refer to as um, as macrocyclic lactone drugs. Um, we we really don't even know how those work. Uh, we know uh, we have a target that we figured out. That, um, uh, you know, it's a it's a it's a ion channel that we know that this drug affects, and we can it can be shown lab, very nicely in laboratory experiments. Um, but uh, we know that resistance uh, doesn't occur due to changes in that gene, um, and and there's evidence that there's other, many other sites of action um, that we're just starting to learn about. So so we really know very little these uh, about um, how these drugs are acting. Another another reason why it's so complicated is that we, we, about half the genes that we find in worms, we don't even know what those genes do. Um, and so if these drugs are interacting with, the, with some of those genes and pathways that we don't even understand how, how they work or what they are, um, then we obviously can't uh, you know, figure out you know, how these drugs are working to kill them or how the worms are overcoming the effects of the drugs. So it's, it's an area that... Um, uh, that really, even though there's been work for decades, uh, that we know relatively little, um, and uh, we're learning more and more all the time. And and finally, in recent years, with the advancements in genomics, um, we've been uh, we've been making much better progress. You know, it's kind of one thing that's funny is that I often will get um, you know asked by microbiologists who study viruses or bacteria, well, why don't you just do it, you know, do the sequence, the genome of, of a resistant worm and a sensitive worm and compare them and find out what, you know, how resistance is, uh, you know, what's responsible for resistance. Uh, you know, of, of course, you know, we've done that many times, um, but to, but parasitic worms have enormous genetic diversity. These populations are huge. Uh, so you, for instance, um, on a farm, um, uh, that these worms can produce thousands of eggs per day. Um, and there's thousands of worms uh, infecting a herd of, of, of animals. And so literally over the course uh, of a week, you could have a billion or more parasite eggs being shed onto the pasture. So this creates incredible genetic diversity. Um, geneticists estimate that 
the worms, one species of worm, it's a common worm called Humonchus, um, that, that it's a sheep worm, that one flock of sheep, the, 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 the Humonchus and one flock of sheep have more genetic diversity than the entire human population. So that what happens is when we, when we compare the genomes of, of two Humonchus worms, we'll find um, hundreds of thousands of differences in sequence. Um, and that doesn't matter if it's two worms, same farm, um, two worms on different farms, one resistant and one susceptible, doesn't matter. You're going to see just this huge, huge genetic diversity. And so when you compare them now, you, if you have hundreds of thousands of genetic differences or SNPs, you know, how are you going to figure out which ones are responsible for, for, for the drug resistance? Uh, it's virtually impossible to figure it out that hmm. way. So, so you, know what, uh, you know what might be interesting, though, is because you might be able to use the big data against the parasite. So because it's so prolific, because it's so diverse, you probably have to use, again, big data. And I guess I'd put it this way. The, um, the parasite is naturally exploring the, the limits of diversity. Um, if you're able to characterize what those limits are, because you have so many examples, so many samples of a parasite, if you have, you know, I mean, it would take, a, I guess, a while to sequence them. But if you're somehow able to characterize the, the range of diversity, it's going to be finite at some point. Yeah. And perhaps then you could see trends, clues, conserved regions, et cetera. You know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, that's, that, that's, that's really, really good thinking there, Richard, um, because that's exactly what a colleague of mine is doing. Dr. Eric Anderson at Northwestern, uh, he's, a, he's a geneticist that works on Cinerabditis um, elegans, um, which is a it's a free living nematode that's used um, as a model for studying eukaryotic biology um, and genetics, and also as a model for studying parasite nematodes. and um, And so he's actually been doing that. That's his, his lab focus on. He's got a project where he seek he's sequenced hundreds of uh, of um, of uh, different uh, strains of, of worms from all around the world, looking for natural diversity. Uh, and and he's learning an awful lot about uh, how how this diversity impacts uh, phenotypes of different of different in different ways, including drug susceptibility. So actually, um, we're working together and uh, on a few projects, and um, and so it, it takes people like that. I mean, I'm 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 a veterinarian, uh, an applied biologist. You know, I'm not a geneticist and I'm not a genomic scientist. So so uh, it's definitely not my specialty. But I'm working uh, with, with a few other laboratories. Uh, that do have that expertise, and and, and so uh, so we are we are um, looking um, at, at at trying to figure out resistance from that uh, standpoint that you that you raised, looking at natural diversities that are occurring, um, but it requires a lot. I said big data, so it requires you know laboratories and scientists that real that, that have the ability to to sequence genomes and analyze the, analyze the, that massive amounts of data uh, efficiently. And so like Eric Anderson at Northwestern is one of those labs that can do that. Um, and so, yeah, we are working with him um, on a few projects and have a few more that uh, in the pipeline. Well, what about comparing within one sheep or one dog, the diversity and then overlaying that on the diversity of, you know, a whole, what do you call it, a, flo- a herd of sheep, not a flock, a herd, and then selectively treating, let's say, some of the sheep, you know, with drugs and then again, looking at, you know, how is that diversity changed within a given sheep? And then does it spread amongst the herd in a different way? I guess if you looked at all those things, perhaps you'd uh, uncover some some pathway. Yeah, I mean, um, certainly it could be possible. But um, 
you know, they're, um, um, you know, the tools are just becoming available to do things like that. And, and the funding for something like that um, just probably, probably would be very difficult to find. Um, yeah, the sequencing bill, as I think about it, would probably be astronomical. Yeah. So, you know, when, when, when um, geneticists have looked at uh, the amount of diversity, you know, essentially the amount of diversity on, on, on one farm is, is about the same as it is, you know, uh, between, you know, two farms. So there's, there's just, there's so much diversity, genetic diversity um, that, uh, you know, any type of project like that would be massive. Uh, um, And so you, so, so to probably make it work, um, you need to have a more controlled system. So that's why like uh, Dr. Anderson is using um, um, C. elegans because it's, uh, it can be manipulated and and maintained in the lab very easily and stored and, and, um, and, and, and grown and, 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 and studied. Whereas with parasites, what becomes very difficult is, you know, you have to grow them inside an animal. Um, and so, so, and it becomes very, very expensive and difficult to, to study them, you know, over time, over generations. Um, and so, uh, it really impairs the ability to make advances, uh, in parasitology, like, like can be made in, vir- in virology or bacteriology, where you can grow, you know, grow the organisms in a laboratory and, with parasites, you have to grow them in animals uh, and they have long life cycles, you know, not hours or days like viruses and bacteria, but, um, but literally weeks and months. Um, and sometimes many, many months like heartworms life cycle is over six months. Um, so, so it becomes very expensive to, to cycle these and, and, and on, on the scale that's necessary to look at a lot of these uh, problems. So, it makes it makes it much more difficult and takes a lot more time to make advancements uh, uh, in parasite research as as compared. Well, when I say helminth research with worms, uh, as compared to uh, um, other types of organisms. Hmm. So, what questions are you? I don't know. Getting close to getting an answer to like what what kind of breakthrough insights do you think that you're uh, hearing? Well, we're um, I. When I say we, it's like it's not my lab specific. You, are you talking about my lab specifically, or kind of the or the my, my my colleagues as a group? Well, your lab specifically, the work that you're doing. Okay, so um, right now, one of the areas we're, we're spending a lot of uh, focusing on is is drug resistance in hookworms and dogs. So, I, I told you about the ability of of hookworms to in some dogs to kind of continue to leak out over time. So every time the dog would go to the vet, they'd be positive and the vet would treat them and treatment would be effective. And, um, and, but then they'd go back next time, the dog's positive. So we call that larval leak. And, and that occurs in a, a small percentage of, of dogs. Uh, again, we don't really know why, but, but it's something we observe. Um, and then a few years ago, uh, my co- several of my colleagues and, 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 and myself started getting calls from veterinarians um, about these, these chronic uh, hook, recurrent hookworm infections that, that they're having trouble clearing. And so um, m- most of my colleagues thought that it was just, you know, more cases of larval leak. And for some reason, larval leak might be becoming more common. Um, but because I've been working, studying drug resistance, you know, for, for pretty much, you know, 20 years or so, you know, to me, it didn't smell like that. So I, it really seemed like this could be a real case of res- drug resistance. So uh, so we established uh, some some strains that we were uh, of of hookworm from 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 clinical cases that vets had called us about. We we got sent, we got some of the um, uh, larvae um, and uh, we, we and then we we infected a few laboratory dogs so we could study it further. 
And basically what we found was that the worms were resistant to all three major classes of anthelmintics that I, that I mentioned earlier. That would, and, and so basically all the drugs that we have that are labeled for use in dogs, none of them work against, uh, against the hookworms that we're finding. So we've been studying this now uh, for the last couple of years, trying to figure out uh, a little bit more about the biology and the epidemiology and, and, and how to diagnose uh, the drug resistance and so forth most optimally. Um, and we've been testing some new drugs um, against it. And, um, and so we've, we've recently tested a drug that's, uh, that's it's, it's sold for dogs in some parts of the world, uh, in Europe uh, uh, particularly, uh, it's not available in the U.S. That's, you know, essentially it hasn't been approved for use in the U.S. by the FDA, but we tested it and it worked really well. Um, and, uh, and we're also now um, doing a study um, uh, where we're, we're trying to figure out the, um, the geographic distribution and prevalence of these resistant hookworms throughout the country. Um, so that's, uh, that, that was, we were just getting that going when, when the COVID started and then it caused our lab to shut down for the last few months. So it's, uh, it's on a hiatus now, but we should be back up and running soon where we're collecting hookworm samples from dogs from all around the country. Uh, and then we're testing it to see if they uh, have res resistance mutations. Cause we, we do know for the one group of drugs, uh, uh, benzimidazole drugs, which are a very, very commonly used anthelmintic, we do know uh, mutations that cause resistance. And we, uh, from livestock parasites, and we found the same, uh, same mutation in hookworms. And so using some uh, deep sequencing assays, some high throughput deep sequencing assays, we, we, can, we were able to quantify the presence of, uh, uh, of those mutations. So, so we have a study going on um, that hopefully will get, will get restarted again here shortly, uh, where we're going to be studying the, um, uh, the distribution and prevalence. And, and at the same time, um, in collaboration with another lab um, that does uh, nematogenetics, we're going to be looking at uh, to see if we can figure out the, the origin of, of the resistance um, by comparing the different uh, genetic haplotype uh, type backgrounds of um, of the worms that we find. So that so that's so that's probably one of the major major projects we have going on, and and really we're the only lab in the in in in, in the world right now that's actually working specifically uh, trying to address uh, this drug resistant hookworm problem. Um, and then another another area I started working on recently was poultry. I'd never really worked with poultry before, uh, but we started um, we got we talked to some veterinarians that were complaining about the treatments not working. Um, and so there's a, there's a large roundworm, um, nematode roundworm of, of turkeys called Ascaridia dissimilis. Uh, and uh, so we did some testing on that and we confirmed for the first time that there was drug resistance. There'd been a few studies that were published in the past where there was suggestions of reduced efficacy, but they really hadn't done a proper controlled trial to, to demonstrate conclusively that there was resistance. But, uh, but we actually did a did a study where we everything was controlled very tightly, and, and so we, sh we we showed uh, you know definitively that that the worms were resistant. Um, and what's kind of interesting is that the the mutations that uh, uh, for resistance that we have found in many other parasites uh, of livestock and in hookworms and dogs, um, those those are all a group of parasites we call strongyle parasites. Um, then there's another group of parasites called ascarids. They're, they're actually genetically pretty distant phylogenetically, but they're, um, um, of course, they're all nematodes. But so far, we haven't been able to find those mutations. And, 
it's we're still um, it's still not definitive that they're not there. We're doing some more sequencing, but we haven't found them yet, um, suggesting that there may be another mechanism involved. So so that's that's uh, an area that we're really um, you know interested in pursuing. And again, that's an area that I'm I'm working with uh, Dr. Anderson on. Um, to try to understand the other uh, diversity of mechanisms of resistance that might be out there. So are, are parasites the, I don't know, they, if you compare them to bacteria or viruses, they seem to be able to proliferate and you know mutate and change faster or just as fast? No, it's much slower, actually, because one big difference between viruses and bacteria and, and parasites, um, and again, the helmet, the worm parasites, is that you know, viruses and bacteria, they reproduce clonally. So, um, so the, by asexual reproduction. So they, so you have one virus and it just, you know, or one bacteria and it just creates, you know, billions of, of more of the same. Um, with parasites, each parasite has essentially its own genetics. And then they reproduce sexually. So there's a male and female. So, um, and so you have to have a, a male and female mating and then, once, once, once that happens, then that female can produce a lot of eggs, um, which can then get into the environment uh, uh, um, or be picked up by an intermediate host um, and infect other animals. Um, but because it requires sexual reproduction, that changes the whole dynamic of, of her and how ch- rapidly those changes are going to occur. So you can get a lot of genetic diversity because, because a female will produce a lot of eggs. Um, and so each one of those. Oh, okay, okay. So, can have so where in a in a field of sheep, where is the sexual reproduction happening inside the sheep? Inside the sheep. Yeah. Okay, and then they're pooping out, I guess, and then it's picked up again. It's recycled into another sheep. Yeah. So what happens with these worms is that you have the 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 the, the larvae in the in the um, uh, intermediate stages or or out in the environment uh, that will then be ingested or penetrate the skin. Um, and, uh, and, and they make their way into whatever niche that worm lives. Most commonly, it's in the, in somewhere in the gastrointestinal tract, or, but it can be almost any tissue in the body. Um, and then you'll have some worms that develop into males, some develop into females. And then as they, once, once eventually they become sexually mature, which again takes weeks or months, depending upon the worm, um, then they'll mate. Um, and, then, and, then, um, and then that female will start then shedding um, uh, egg stages or larval stages that can be available to infect other animals. Um, but the large majority okay. of those, of course, the, you know, the, the chances that, that any one of those eggs or larvae is ever going to infect another animal is super low. So the way the parasite deals with that is just by creating a very, very large number uh, of those eggs and larvae. And so only a fraction ever will infect another host, but, but because they produce so many that, they basically ensure that uh, the life cycle will continue. Well, within a you know a sheep, for instance, um, are there more males versus females? Is there a, a lot more diversity in the females versus the males? Like, are there any skews that you can capitalize on? Any bottlenecks that you know in, in terms of resistance? Has it yeah. been discovered that males are more resistant than females, or vice versa? Mostly not. Um, um, there has been. Um, in some species, there has been found some sex linkage uh, in some drugs to resistance, uh, uh, but for the most part, there doesn't appear to be much of a difference between the susceptibility of males and females to the drugs. Uh, and you, you might think that you don't need as many males as females, 
um, because actually they're polyandrous. So, so, they, uh, so they'll, they'll mate with multiple partners. Uh, but in reality is, is that mo- the, the, the percentage of males and females is often pretty close to 50, 50. Um, and, um, so, um, it's an inter- interesting thought, but there's, yeah, but there's, there's, there's no evidence that there's, you know, that much, uh, you know, the differences there. Uh, although there are, there are sex, sex chromosomes, uh, in, in worms, just like uh, in mammals. Um, but you know, again, that's you know, that's not an area that, that I'm an ex- have expertise in, so I don't want to go too deep into that. But, uh, but it's an interesting thought. But you know, so far the, there's nothing that's quite very apparent to, to suggest that that uh, that looking at males versus females is 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 something where there would be highly fruitful for most for most things in in this area. Yeah, I don't know if that would be a a good thing in a cocktail party. You know, to say that you're an expert on parasite sex. <laughs> that would be that would probably turn people off. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, very good. I mean, it seems really interesting. The stuff you're working on has got its own really difficult challenges, and uh, very, very interesting. What, what what's your guess or estimation on what you think you're going to figure out in the next few years? Is it just who knows, or do you feel like you're close to understanding something? Yeah. Well, um, one thing that. Uh, you know, it's not something I'm directly working in, but I'm collaborating with some other labs, uh, genetics labs, and um, uh, and they they are coming very close to figuring out uh, the genomic loci responsible for ivermectin resistance. So ivermectin, again, the, the, probably the most important uh, um, anthelmintic drug. Uh, the discoverers of that drug won the Nobel Prize a few years ago, Nobel Prize for Medicine. Um, it's used in humans. Uh, billions of doses uh, have been delivered to humans. Uh, billions of doses have been delivered to animals over the last few decades. Um, it's really a miracle drug in many respects, and it's it's done amazing things for human and animal health. Uh, but but we've had big big problems with drug resistance uh, in the last uh, you know couple of decades, and it's getting worse and worse. Um, and, but we still don't know. Uh, we have we have absolutely no knowledge of what causes resistance, but they have identified using uh, some of the more, uh, uh, you know, newer genomic tools and then some clever strategies. um, They have um, actually figured out where uh, on the chromosomes, um, uh, there's one chromosome in particular and the loci on that chromosome where um, the region of that chromosome, where the, where the resistance mutation lies. Uh, There's still, a fair number of genes there, but they're narrowing it down. And, uh, and within a few years, I believe that we'll actually know the primary, um, uh, you know, loci that causes resistance, uh, ivermectin resistance. So that's going to be a huge breakthrough. Um, we don't know if that's going to be the only one, but it certainly is going to be the, the, the major one. Um, so that's one major breakthrough. Um, and, um, for sure. And then, um, you know, as far as far as the things, it's it's more say incremental. Um, you know, uh, they the work we're doing with um, with the Ascaridia could be very interesting because it's uh, Ascaris, which is a, a closely related worm in the same same um, group as Ascaridia and turkeys that we're working on. Ascaris uh, lumbricoides is the most prevalent parasite of humans, uh, helminth parasite of humans. There's about a billion people around the world infected with Ascaris. It's a so it's an important problem. Um, uh, in people, uh, and especially children. So, and a lot of drugs are used to treat it. 
um, the same drugs that we use, similar drugs that we use for, in turkeys. And so, so if we can understand how resistance is developing and, and, and figure out the mutations responsible for resistance and ascaridia, that could have uh, important uh, direct uh, application to surveillance uh, of resistance developing in human uh, in the human ascaris. Well, very good, Ray. It's been a good call. We're out of time, but uh, what's the best way people could find out more about your particular work in your lab? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. I wish we had a better website. Um, um, I have I have my lab, um, you know, the the, the the department website that has some general information, um, but it doesn't really go into a lot of detail. As far as the sheep and goat work um, uh, that we do, I didn't really talk all that much about that. That's that's more applied. Um, but I'm I'm involved with a large group of uh, of, of scientists of all different um, specialist specialties, extension specialists, and nutritionists, and animal scientists, and agronomists, um, nutri- and and um, and you know veterinarians, parasitologists. We all work together, um, and uh, we have a website called WormX.info. Uh, so it has uh, basically lots of information on on controlling worms and sheep and goats. Uh, and so that's 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 an area that anyone has who has interested in that topic can go to. Um, as far as the other other things I talked about, um, I don't really have a, um, a. There's no like good website that has a lot of information, unfortunately, right now for that. All right, but that's a good start. I just want to give listeners, you know, somewhere else to look. So uh, very good. Well, Ray, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Richard. Uh, it was uh, uh, interesting talking with you, and and uh, you had lots of good questions, and uh, and uh, I enjoyed. Uh, speaking with you today. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.